You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here. This is a superlative podcast, and today I am joined by one of the senior Blog to Watch members, Zach Pena. Hey, Zach. Ariel, thanks so much for having me. Great to be here as always. This new show is a lot more about the behind the scenes of the watch world and why people appreciate watches than just talking about watches themselves. And on this particular episode, I was hoping that you and I could talk about something super important to appreciating watches, especially in the world of the pandemic where everybody is looking at watches online, and that is watch photography, something very near and dear to our heart. Um, this, is, this is sort of a not discussed area that much, but it's a big deal, right? Watch photography? Yeah, it really is. It's kind of a, I mean, <laughs> I think one of the things I love about photography just in general as a, as a profession for many people um, is that there are so many interesting little facets of it. Um, you need a totally different kit if you're shooting architecture, if you're shooting birds, if you're shooting landscapes, there's all different kinds of, I mean, the camera, the lenses, the, the whole kit, everything changes so dramatically depending on what you're shooting. And for shooting watches, it is a really neat niche kind of kit that I think um, I've always been interested in photography, but, uh, you know, as, as I became more involved with the blog to watch, it became clear that like shooting watches was fun and something that I wanted to be able to do more of. And I think, you know, it's something that a blog to watch kind of pioneered pretty early on, like in the early blog days, like when, you know, nobody was really taking pictures of watches. That wasn't really like a thing like it is now. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting to see how it's, how it's kind of blown up and become this like community thing as well, especially on Instagram and on the forums. Yeah, it's it's evolved into a pretty ridiculous area with a lot of <laughs> evolutionary dead ends and interesting areas. But I'll tell you where it all started um, because you know I had been into watches for several years, probably about six years before I started a blog to watch. And what I what I was doing was I was making decisions to buy watches I'd never seen before because seeing them in person was never an option. So I had to use available pictures and stuff like that to make a purchase decision. And I recognized the importance of watches uh, or the pictures of watches as, you know, doing the best possible job of showing you what it'd be like in real life. And the marketing images, they're so highly doctored. They're so produced. Much of the time, they're as much, you know, computer graphics as they are actual photography. Mm -hmm. yep. You have no idea what the hell a watch looks like in person yep. when you see these things. Yeah. So to finish off, a blog to watch, when I first started as a blog to read, the photography I did, and I, and I got better and better over time, was to do that for people. Hey, you can't actually see this watch in person. So I'm going to do my best to photograph it in a way that allows it to look like what you'd see. And that was, that's always been the job. And I think that if you don't have that type of photography, it makes it really difficult for someone to make a decision to buy something remotely. Yeah, totally agree. And that was kind of the early days of the wrist shot. I mean, really. And that's kind of how I became a blog to watch reader early on was cruising the, you know, the internet forums, uh, watch you seek at the time. But before that, I mean, obviously there was uh, time zone and there were other forums, but for me it was watch you seek. And, um, you know, there were, there were guys on there that were kind of doing like the beauty watch photography thing, like the home hobbyist, um, you know, of which there are still plenty of now on Instagram. There was some good stuff out there. I remember what some of those guys would do. Yeah. But to your point, you know, you could, you could go to a watches, you know, watch brands website or look at a physical catalog, catalog on your desk and like the, you know, there was really no way to get a good idea of, you know, how a watch looked on the wrist, None. you know, how it, um how it was shaped, you know, it's always, that was part of the fun of kind of buying stuff, I think early on, because you, it looked cool, but you weren't really sure what it was actually going to look like. <laughs> you know, <'cause> there, <laughs> there was, there was nothing, there were no, there was, there was, there was no real resource that showed, you know, case front, side, back, thickness, lug to lug, you know, all of these types of measurements and dimensions. Um, could be written down, but you know, until they're photographed and kind of captured, it was really hard to get that essence. It, the early days of this, actually, before the forums, well, sort of at the same time, but in a different way, was eBay listings. 
Yeah, very and true. And you'd have watches on eBay, and you know you wanted to buy a watch, and you needed to see what it looked like. So at the time, you couldn't even find marketing images. You know, we're talking about the early 2000s. So people would take these, you know, crude images. Sometimes they were awful, like completely <laughs> blurry. It's like, why did you think those were okay? And like, <laughs> what do you try to hide? Yeah. And um, you'd recognize that, you know, this was a really, this was really a problem. And it was not easy. It was not like I learned. Like people, are like, where'd you learn to do? like being an autodidact when it comes to covering wristwatches is crucial. There's no guide out there. Um, you know, the blog to watch team teaches itself. We each sort of like teach each other skills. Like you've taught me things. I'm sure I've taught you things. Like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's it's a, it's sort of like a tribal approach to shooting watches. No, it abs it absolutely is, and I think. I think for me, early on with the Blog to Watch team and David, uh, our senior correspondent based in in Europe. I mean, David is a um, an incredible photographer. I mean, he has, he has such a great grasp on on metering and on post production and and how to set up a shot. Um, and I've said this before, but you know, one of my favorite things about about working with the Blog to Watch team on location um, during trade show season, which unfortunately this year wasn't really a thing. Hopefully next year. <sighs> I lament it so. Yeah, right. You kind of you kind of walk into a room, um, and you know you're presented with watches to photograph. Um, you know, for the community to get a, their first impressions of outside of the the media images, and um, you know those rooms are kind of puzzles in and of themselves. That uh, you know there's a, there's a specific way to to make the most of the available light, or to bounce the light from a flash, or to use a you know a colleague's wrist in the right position. So. I love the kind of puzzling aspect of, you know, going in and, and producing something. And um, it was always really interesting to see how David would set his shots up. And sometimes we would shoot the same watch in the same room in the, in the span of the same five to 10 minutes and get two dramatically different results. Um, so I feel like I learned a lot from him, learned a lot from watching you. Um, and, uh, but I would love to know from you, what was the first, uh, what was the first camera system that you used to photograph watches? Cause I, I get that question all the time on Instagram. Really? Um, they ask you the yeah. first one? Well, they don't ask me what the first camera was that I used, but they want to know what's, what camera should they get to start photographing watches with? And that got me thinking, like, well, what was the first camera that you ever used to photograph watches? Because quite frankly, the best camera to photograph watches is the camera with you. This <laughs> is the one that yeah, you have. <laughs> I, that's true. I remember, so I remember it was, it was a Canon 20D, and it was their first serious um, S-set, like DSLR body that you could get for the EOS system. Um, I had been into photography a little bit as sort of a just total amateur since college, my first digital camera was probably in, yeah, the year 2000. It was an Olympus who just recently announced that they stopped making digital cameras, which was mm -hmm. ironic. Um, <laughs> and I remember it was like, it was like 800 bucks at the time. It was like, I don't know, like 1.8 megapixels or some tiny thing like that. And it was so incredible to me, the amount of pictures you could take without film because mm -hmm. film would punish you to take a picture. It's like, I got two left. <laughs> Digital photography, you could experiment and you could play with the settings. And, you know, I had to teach myself how to do manual shooting and things like that. Like, honestly, it wasn't really until I started shooting watches that I really get into that. Mm. But, you know, you can't, I don't know that you can go from like just shooting with your phone to being like, I'm going to take pictures of watches. Like there's a progression over time of things you need to learn right. um, about. I think the most important thing is to recognize that if you're taking a picture of a watch, and you're, you're holding the camera, you still have to have a clear shot, meaning it still has to be, you know, sharp, not blurry. Mm -hmm. And just that alone is a hard thing to do, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. <laughs> so there's, shooting a watch is a very special challenge. And so if I look back at those early shots from like 2007, I mean, they were good, they were good at the time. You know, they're much lower resolution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the cameras themselves weren't as good. I didn't have a dedicated macro lens to begin with, though I got one very early on. But, you know, I've come a, a, an incredible long way. And yes, we, we have better equipment now. But I think the thing that you have to learn the most about is light. But just hearing myself mm -hmm. talk about it, I'm recognizing that, you know, watches and photography, yes, it goes together. But it's all this obsession with having the right tool for the right job. Right. And people who are into photography know that, I don't know of any other industry other than maybe video, which is the same thing, where there's more like random tools and accessories and, and things that you can buy. This like crazy, endless universe. 
There's so much stuff. There's so much stuff. But I think you touched on a great point there in that a lot of what attracts enthusiasts to photography in general, again, no matter what the discipline is, whether it's street photography or, or architecture or birding or outdoors or whatever, um, it is kind of that attention to detail. And, uh, you know, you do find a lot of people in the watch world who are inherently drawn to photography as well, simply or, or vice versa, um, because they're both very sort of detailed oriented hobbies or professions for some people. And um, taking time to kind of slow down, to set up a shot, to produce something that 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 kind of best demonstrates either the character of the watch. So in in my instance, some of my favorite, some of the, the artwork, um, the photography that kind of inspires me, particularly in the watch world, you know, are products that are being used um, in the contexts in which they were built for. Yeah. Hard thing to do. It is actually a surprisingly hard thing to do, um, especially in the world of of uh, diving. You know, whether it's diving or aviation or um, you know outdoors adventure. I mean, there's definitely um, a lot of different ways to kind of cut that. But that you know that that I think is really what separates the you know just a, a wrist shot that lets somebody know what a watch looks like versus a wrist shot that lets somebody know what it feels like to wear that watch or to be in the context in which that watch was designed. And that's, that's definitely my, my favorite way to kind of look at all of this. We need to talk about that topic more because it's, it's such an important part of the value of those types of you know, pictures of showing a watch doing what it's meant to do. In the watch world, you have all these adventure watches sold completely out of context. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there's a story behind these watches in regard to what they're meant for that if you're aware of that story and you have familiarity with that story, you can at least visualize it, that watch becomes so much more appealing to you. You'll want it more. There's a higher chance you'll wear it, higher chance you'll buy it. And so the industry that makes watches has a marketing incentive to help people visualize their watches doing the things that those watches were meant for. Mm -hmm. Absent that, it just takes too much imagination. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. What... I admire about your photography is that you do that. But in general, the pursuit of that has so much value to the industry because, you know, the watch floating in space against a white <laughs> background, you know, call it a pilot watch, call it a diving watch, call it a field watch. It's just a, a design in front of a white background. It doesn't mm. mean anything unless you can contextualize it. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. You know, I think, and there's some brands that, that do it better than others. Uh, it's always, to me, it's always exciting to see brands where, um, you know, they actually, they actually shot the watch in the right context. And <laughs> one, one thing that I really kind of enjoy doing, this is maybe, um, a bit too much inside baseball, but when we get a press kit emailed to us, um, you know, that contains all of the lifestyle photography for us to build a story ahead of an embargo, for example, I love dropping the images in the press pack into Photoshop or Lightroom and kind of studying the metadata. Uh, and this is something that, <laughs> um, you know, anyone can do with, with, with kind of the raw base images. Some brands um, strip that data before they put it into the press kits. Uh, some do not. And so it's always fun to find like what the, what the camera system was that was used, um, what, you know, what the aperture and shutter speed were, the ISO. And you can really kind of start I to- I know what you're talking about. You can really kind of start to read into, um, you know, whether a shot was kind of faked, whether it was actually done in the studio, uh, depending on the camera system. Um, there's it all is kinds interesting. Of, it's, it is. Re it's a really fun little yeah. snapshot in, into, into the insight behind some of these brands. And some of my favorite shots um, are not photos that are taken on, you know, a, a phase one camera system, you know, which can run easily upwards of um, $40,000, dollars $60,000. And, and they're a pain to use. And they're a pain to use. Not user-friendly at and all. not only that, they're extremely challenging to use outside a studio environment, which is fine because, it, you know, it's not a studio camera or it's not a it's not a, an adventure camera. You know, it's not something that you're banging yeah, good around luck with. with and, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's um, the so, adventure, using that yeah, as an adventure exactly, camera. Exactly. So that's a very popular studio camera. It's the phase one system. Um, but it's really interesting to me to see shots that were taken kind of guerrilla style. Uh, and I'm working on a story for Omega's uh, Planet Ocean America's Cup 
um, watched, which came out this year. And they did a series of images that were shot on the boat um, during a race, or probably during a practice or something. And the images themselves are not flawless. You know, the hands are not at 10 and 10. Um, the watch is not in perfect focus, but the images themselves communicate the to your point earlier, when you when you look at an image, like it should communicate what the watch is for, help the user or the the viewer, the 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 customer understand what the watch is for, and these images to me that are done more guerrilla style in the moment communicate that in spades. So I love that those the photos themselves are maybe not perfect, but the mood and the tone and the purpose of the image is 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 perfect, and that to me is way more valuable than a, a photo that's been shot on a you know $100,000 camera system, as fun as that may be. <laughs> no, and, and you're right. I mean, from the gear perspective, there's this crazy hierarchy of stuff from like basically all the way down to a phone and then, you know, topping out of stuff like phase one. And you're right. The better gear you have, the more like, oh, my God, that's crazy resolution mm-hmm. or all this, yep. you know, you're, you're on a tripod, you stack a bunch of images together. You're like, yep, how did yep, you do that? <laughs> but with that said... It doesn't help us live the fantasy that a lot right. of watch collectors have and inside of them in regard to appreciating and desiring and owning these watches. And that fantasy is, you know, I like boating. And even if I can't boat all the time or ever, maybe if I had a boating watch, I can look at that and think of that thing I appreciate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this this takes us all the way back to the, the first time I met you. Actually, was in uh, Grand Cayman for the uh, for the Oris. Quick bit of backstory, how I got introduced to a blog to watch. Um, I was a reader, a longtime reader of a blog to read, then a blog to watch. Um, Oris held a contest with um, for Ariel to to pick a, a reader, a commenter on a community post for Oris. And, um, hey, that was random. I, I know. I actually talked to Bilal about this after the fact, and it was actually random. So we can, <laughs> I feel like we can put that to bed. It was... <laughs> It was, uh, we didn't know each other. We didn't know each other. I didn't know anybody on the team. I wrote what I considered to be a pretty well thought out comment and included some photos that struck the right tone. It was random. It was right place, right time. Anyway. Um, yeah, it was, you know, I, I met you and came in and what was really cool about that particular adventure is not just that we, you know, we got to dive together, but that, um, you know, Oris sent along a professional uh, underwater photographer, this guy named Phil, who was based in Florida at the time. And Phil was able to kind of document our learning, you know, our learning how to dive. But to me, what was more, what was cooler about that was Phil shooting the watches in the context that they were meant to be worn in. And I remember, I mean, you and I, and you can find this on our YouTube channel, but we, you know, we, we talked about this one of the nights after it was second or third night of diving, you know, we're sitting around the bar drinking K-Brews and, um, it, we were just talking about how cool it is to kind of, you know, it's easy to look at a dive watch and be like, this doesn't make any sense. But then when you're actually using it in the context or it's being photographed in the context, all of a sudden, all of, you know, watches that were really, truly purpose-built, all of the design nuances really come to life in these interesting circumstances. Yeah. I just remember that very specifically being kind of the beginning of what really got me addicted to this kind of style of photography. I, I remember the first time I realized that a dive watch looks different underwater. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and some of them that look great out of water, like you can't read them underwater. Yeah. And some that are like, eh, you put them underwater, like, oh, now I get it. Yeah. Yeah, and and that's it's more than just color too. I mean, the the curvature of the crystal, the all kinds of stuff, the way the markers are applied, the luminous material. I mean, everybody everybody says, you know, if a watch doesn't have enough lume, you won't be able to read it underwater. And like, you wouldn't be underwater in total darkness without a torch. So yeah, exactly. You're gonna be able to see a watch <laughs> with or without lume. So the lume to me doesn't actually even really matter. Like, it's it's more about the contrast between the markers and the color of the dial. And if you don't have that contrast, it's going to be impossible to read. No or like the light. certain angles, like you know, yep, you're angles. you're never really uh-huh. like having your your wrist just straight at you. So a lot of dive watches, the the entire crystal goes, it turns into a mirror at an angle. Yep. Yep. So you can't even look at your watch half the time. So <laughs> it's interesting to see the differences between the watches that you can and can't see in those kind of interesting lighting conditions with. The you know the water light is being reflected in weird ways. It just it doesn't operate the same way yep. as light you know outside of water. Yeah, that's exactly true. That's exactly true. Yeah, when are we when are we diving again? By the way, <laughs> <sighs> man, I keep thinking about that like crazy. I don't know. It's like yeah. during these days, do you want to be stuck on an island in the Caribbean? Maybe yes, maybe no. I don't know. Um, 
you know, especially like you're you're entirely reliant on a well functioning like airline industry. Yeah, seriously, seriously. <laughs> I mean, at this point, though, you know, I, we've pretty much been following the rules since March. I'm willing to take that chance to be marooned on an island. <laughs> I know, I know, but like you I'm know, ready. you wouldn't get you wouldn't get your food shipment. You'd be like yeah, last on the true. list. You know what I mean? That's like, true. It could go all kinds of crazy ways. Um, but I have been thinking basically where to go that's close enough to civilization where I can be swimming because yep. that sounds great. You know, I mean, everyone in there, everyone's going to Greece right now. I've still never been diving in Greece. I know that's like very high yeah. on the list of places. Yeah. I don't know that it's like we have to go to someplace super out of the way that no one would know about um, right now. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out for sure. But I, yeah, I, I'm like you. I really want to go out there and do some adventures. Like you and I have been pitching brands mm-hmm. and they're like, yeah. okay, just give us a little bit of money yeah. and we'll take a car and some watches and we'll just go somewhere with the driving yep, distance. Yep, yep. We want to go on watch adventure road trips. And so how does that start? Does it start with, we have a watch we want to go on a road trip with, where would it make sense? Or do we have to say like, where would be a pretty place and what watch makes sense to go there? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I mean, I think there are just there are just some watches that make more sense in some places, and that's that's to me is kind of half the fun. Like, where where does when you look at a rendering of a watch for the first time, you see something like what is what does that product remind you of? And I feel like you know, there's a lot of um, you know, I spend a fair amount of time in the the cycling industry as well. You know, the bicycles are also very um, you know aspirational type products like when you get on your bike where does it make you want to go or what does it make you want to do and I think watches are also this inherently communicative device where you put it on how does it make you feel where does it want to make you go so I don't know I, I think that's that's part of the fun is that you know the character whether it's um, you know, there are some watches where it's very blatant what it was designed to, to do or communicate you look at uh, something like the um, like the IWC, a uh, big pilot like the Top Gun Mojave. It's it's called Mojave, and it has you know this this kind of khaki colored ceramic case. I mean, everything about that just screams you know, going Mach two, super low over desert some, camo, you know, some desert canyon. You know, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, you know, there's some. Now I want to fi- fly a fighter jet through the Grand Canyon. Yes, thank seriously. you. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, one of the watches of the summer, we were lucky enough to uh, to go hands-on with everything pretty early on in the pandemic back in April, um, was uh, Seiko's new um, Seiko's new series of dive watches, including the, the Captain Willard reissue, the Green Dialed SP. I, I'm not even going to try the... Yeah, darn. <laughs> gonna, I, I do appreciate the fact that neither of us are um, reference number sticklers, but... I mean, I'm not like I'm not I'm not like a memorization person. It's a pure memorization. There's nothing else you can associate with it. Like Captain Willard, at least that's a humanizing thing. Exactly. Exactly. I feel like you and you actually made a pretty good man. I can't remember when this was long time ago. You you actually made a point of kind of calling out. There's a reason, you know, some Seiko models are more popular than others because they have specific names attached to them as associated as 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 opposed to just the reference numbers. Uh, The problem with Grand Seiko. Yeah. This is true across the board <laughs> in all product categories. Products right. that have a relatable name, not like a person's name, but just a place, just something which is mm-hmm, you know part of mm-hmm. your language versus you know a series of letters or numbers or something like that, always sell better because people remember them more. The only reason that companies like having products with numbers and things like that is you don't have to worry about languages. You know what I mean? Right. It's like it's not offensive. You're not going to violate right. anyone's copyright. Like It's just like the easy thing yep. to do. <laughs> um, but you know, it, it's, it's robbing themselves of that. And so what ends up happening is watch companies kind of stop after they made a nice watch. They don't mm-hmm. think about naming it. Packaging is never really once in a while. It's a thought marketing, forget about it. They like, they stop at the nice watch. And then yep. while we're not really paid for it, even though we kind of are, it's, it's people like me and Zach who have to do the thing that is required to get other people to be excited about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, like the so watch itself <laughs> is not enough, and that's what's so important about the photography. Is the photography, especially in a digital world, is that thing which gets you involved. There's no there's, like you're not going to read an article about a watch without seeing it and be like, man, I really want to learn more about right. that. Right. It could be amazing, but right. you have got to see it. Yeah. Yeah, it's the true. most visible hobby I can think of. Yeah, no, it's very true. And I think, you know, not only do you have to see it, I think what you're seeing has to communicate whatever the the intent of that product was. And I think, you know, going back to the green dialed Captain Willard, um, 
you know, it's, it's a perfect summer watch, but what's interesting about it is, you know, obviously the, it's based off of a, you know, Captain Willard being a character from a, a Vietnam era war movie. To me, the watch doesn't scream Vietnam. It screams, yeah, (laughs) it screams like Kauai on Hawaii. So where you're like, you're driving around in a Jeep and it's muddy and you're driving through the jungle and it's lush, you know, and there's this lush. It was basically vacationing in Vietnam. It's like the ultimate kind of jungle vacation watch. Could be Vietnam. I feel like it's a Hawaii watch. It's like the perfect Hawaii watch because you're diving and you're also doing jungle stuff. The Vietnam tourism industry really needs your support. (laughs) Yes, they do. You know, I, f- I feel like if I get to that corner of the world next year, we were actually making plans to get there this year. I really want to check out Cambodia. I feel like there's the I was thinking Vietnam, the same Laos, thing. Cambodia. Yeah, it's very. We'd very have to find right the now. Cambodian language version of Captain <laughs> Willard, and you and I might not be able to pronounce it. There it and is. Then we're, yeah. And then we'd go back to a series of letters and numbers. Yeah, exactly. So, how do you feel like? Okay, so everybody, everybody's a photographer, essentially, in this day and age. Everybody's got a, a cell phone camera, you know, a mobile phone camera. There's truth to that statement. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? I mean, I think, I think the best camera is always going to be the one that's with you, as you know, has been said many times before. And um, how do you feel like the proliferation of watch photos? I mean, I mean, I think there's a difference between, like, using your iPhone and being like, this is what's on my wrist today. And actually, you know, styling something and shooting it and right. editing it and then uploading it. You know, there's obviously a very different in process, but both of these things are effective. Or they can be effective, can they not? The citizen watch photographer more or less destroyed there being a professional industry mm-hmm. of watch photography. And, and don't get me mm-hmm. wrong, I was part of the problem. You know, back in the day, I would go meet with brands, take pictures for my blog, but those pictures ended up doing the marketing, you know, work. So they were like, oh, I don't have to pay this photographer guy that he's nice <laughs> to pay per shot, per an hour, whatever. And I inadvertently um, helped kill a lot of the jobs. And then what came after that was everybody having a mobile phone that could take a picture. So you didn't even need a camera set up anymore. You could just take a picture and put it on Instagram, which further eroded at brands even wanting to pay for it. Now, brands do know that good, good quality photography requires a lot more than just a phone. They get mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. But I, I think what's interesting is that the citizen photography the, or the hobbyist photography has made it impossible for there to be a professional industry like there, there once was. And again, this is a lot of industries, um, you, you have this issue. So it's unfortunately something where the economics only allow for it to be low budget, high energy, high enthusiasm. This isn't this isn't really a way a lot of people make money. There's a few out there, but I'd say it's small enough that it isn't sort of a professional category, which is, <laughs> yeah. again, also doubly problematic because shooting watches proper, properly does take actual profession. Yeah, Like yeah. you need to experiment a lot. You need to have a lot of money to play with all kinds of gear. You need to experiment. I mean, we rent stuff all the time. We're constantly like looking over at like, what are they using? Should we use that? Um, a lot of the gear, we, like if we were going to have a proper setup, like if everyone on the team was to have a proper watch setup in the way they wanted to, I mean, you're talking like thousands upon thousands of dollars each person mm-hmm. in yep. gear, not because we're trying to be prissy, but because like there's very few companies that make this, like the lighting equipment, mm-hmm. um, you know, pro, <laughs> funny you mentioned Profoto, which is a company that, that we work with. We've done some, um, you know, commercial relationships with. They're a light shaping company. They don't make cameras. They make mostly flashes and strobes and various types of things that you know you bounce light off of. They're one of the few companies out there that has portable lighting equipment sufficient to allow us to do what we need. And mm-hmm. they're you know starting like a thousand bucks a flash. Like that's mm-hmm. more than a lot of cameras. Yep. But I mean that was that was one of the clear differences. I mean I, I feel like Profoto catches a lot of flack for being expensive for expensive sake. And I know, you know, Profoto um, Umbrella. Yeah, I think they do kind of in the, you know, the deep web photography circles. But, you know, at the end of the day, having shot on a Sony branded flash and then switching to a Profoto branded flash, I mean, the, the quality of the, the light, the, the power of the flash is, is, is absolutely one thing. I mean, they both shape light to a certain degree. But the build quality of the flash is dramatically different. I mean, it just it just feels it feels like a product that is that is designed uh, in a way that a lot of other photography gear is like, there's a design element to it. It's not all very purpose specific. And I kind of, I kind of love that. 
about them. I mean, it's, you know, it's a Scandinavian company, but, um, so, you know, there, there are some things that are simply just designed, um, for these types of purposes. And I think, I think that, you know, you could, you could make this exact same argument within the watch industry. There are some products that are just so Spartan that they just do a job, but there are some products that are, that are designed sort of within that, um, within that same sphere that also do a job, but they've been designed around a very specific, um, kind of language. And I think that's what makes Profoto kind of unique, um, in their, in their field. The quality is absolutely there. Let's talk about that for a second, because I think you brought up something interesting and that is it's not just having the right gear, but it's having gear that pleases the eye. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's one thing to like tools and appreciate tools that do a good job. It's an entirely different thing to say, I want to be around a bunch of pretty tools. <laughs> what it, it, it's it's an interesting piece of psychology there. And you know, you're we're into watches because we're looking for the pretty ones. So it makes mm -hmm. sense that everything else in our life, we're like, we want the pretty this, we want the pretty that. Um, but we're not doing it to show off. It's a very specifically personal sense of gratification mm -hmm. that we're looking mm -hmm. for. Yeah, no, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think especially now that, um, and again, the same analogy could be made for cars or for bikes, you know, we're, we're at a point in history where a lot of things, particularly expensive things, <laughs> but a lot of things are objectively excellent. I mean, most bicycles now, most modern bicycles at or above a certain price point are going to be objectively excellent. Most cameras, you look at, you know, the full frame cameras from Canon, Nikon, Sony, they are objectively excellent. They do different things, but, you know, I think when, when it comes to recommending a camera system for somebody, um, you know, I always, the first thing I say is like, have you picked it up? Like, how does it feel in your hand? And I feel like the camera that's ultimately going to be used the most is the one that feels the most natural in your hands. And then from there, you can say, okay, well, these guys do these types of lenses, or these guys have these lenses, or this weighs this amount. I gravitated towards Sony pretty early on in the mirrorless era. Um, I, have a, I had a Nex, a Sony Nex camera, Nex 3 or Nex 5, I can't remember. It was one of the first interchangeable lens uh, mirrorless systems that they ever made. And that was kind of the precursor to... Um, you know, it was a micro four thirds system. Now, you know, every full frame mirrorless is a, is the thing. And, um, it's interesting because that pretty early on, you know, I just, I wanted, um, I wanted portability like that to me was the most important thing. So I was sacrificing like Sony's never been, they've never felt super great in the hand from like an ergonomic <laughs> standpoint. No. Um, you know, I feel like Canon, Canon cameras feel so good in the hand. They've just got yeah. the grip and the weight is right. Um, you know, I'll be the first to admit that the a seven system, the platform, um, the, you know, not, not super great. The ergonomics are better on the, the Mark four. Um, the R4. that's why I shoot Canon. You're just, yeah. you're just giving it away. <laughs> So exactly, you know, I mean, that should be the first thing is like, what, how does it feel in your hand? What's the type of photography do you want to, you know, you want to be able to do the, the flip side of that is like, I knew I wanted a camera system that I could shoot. Uh, I could shoot watches with on the side, like for fun, but I also wanted to be able to go like backpacking with it. So it had to kind of be light, you know, the system had to be light enough that I could literally clip it to my backpack strap. Um, so, I mean, it was, it was quite cool when I first got an a seven, um, a number of years ago, I, I did that. Like the first lens I bought for it was a 35 millimeter 2.8. And then I bought a 50 millimeter 2.8 macro. I just had those two lenses for a while, uh, both primes. And That's I would take I the, but it's, I mean, yeah, let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> um, I took the macro to Basel that year. And a couple months later, um, went backpacking Yosemite with the exact same camera clipped to my, you know, clipped to my, uh, to my backpack. So you know, it should it should be the the system that you that fits your lifestyle and okay. So you're you're talking about promoting versatility, which is one way of thinking and very popular. And then the other end is have a bunch of cameras and lenses for the specific thing. Like my setup with my <laughs> Canon, I can't do that. I can't go to Yosemite. I tried taking that camera on a on a I think it was Japan one time. Okay, this is the the five DSR and. It's like it shouldn't even have an automatic mode at all. It's like they should have <laughs> taken it out. It doesn't work very well. I mean, it. It's like the. It's 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 such a bad like run and gun camera. It's like yeah. terrible at that. Yeah. yeah. Um. For my manual shooting, it's got it's fifty megapixels. 
Um, it's based on the you know the the the, the five the five D family, but it's just this very specialized thing. Mm-hmm. I have made the sacrifice of not very good portability, not very good versatility for taking a particular type of shot mm-hmm. that I like. But I could just as well like bring aboard like six cameras. Like in an ideal world, we have like a holster of cameras in our <laughs> studio. <laughs> and we're like, which one do I want to use now? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. It's just, you know, you, were, you said something really important about all the cameras being objectively excellent, but you have to find the one that's best for you. That's and exactly right. I want to take this opportunity to sort of bring it back to the show name of superlative because that's exactly what we're talking about. It's this process of appreciating something enough to needing to find the best of an already series of good things. And it's sort of a, a lifestyle that everyone on the A Blog to Watch team pursues, of course, in their own way. But, you know, Zach and I, in addition to watches, also like cameras. And it's the same way of thinking. But what's great about cameras is unlike watches, we can actually use these things for the stuff it was intended for way more often. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep, exactly. And I think, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say that, um, I mean, every, and, and I think, I think that's what's hard. That's what's hard when you're just starting out with, with taking photos. Cause you have to be able to answer the hard questions of like, okay, so you want to take photos. Great. What do you want to do with those photos or what types of photos do you, and, and the more, what you don't realize really early on when you're just buying your first camera or you're just starting out or you're just asking those questions, you maybe don't have, you maybe don't know what kind of art you want to create or you maybe don't know what your style is, but you, through the process of shooting, you learn what that style is. You start to learn what types of photos you really want to take. But early on, I think it's really important to be able to identify if you're taking pictures of watches or your baby or uh, dogs or birds or whatever it is, like you should have some passing interest, at least of a subject. So then from there you can say, okay, so it needs to be light or it needs to be a studio camera. It needs to be this, this, or this, because, um, and then see how it feels from there. And then you can really start to, I mean, there are hundreds of different rabbit holes um, that you can go down. I was on a shoot last summer, um, in, or last spring in Texas with a flashlight brand called Michant. They make really high end. I mean, talk about niche products. They make really high end, beautiful, beautifully machined flashlights. And I want one already. <laughs> exactly. They're based in Texas. So we went out and did, um, we went out and did this big content adventure out in far West Texas. And one of the shoots, so the owner of the company is, um, he's an avid, he's a, I would call him a, a photography He's like, he's like, he appreciates the process of photography. He's, he's a process guy. And, um, one of the photos that we went to take was, um, on a Gravelex camera system. It's this super old school, like massive wooden tripod. It's one of those box cameras where like, he's a process guy because it's this, it's this process thing. It's not, it's not so much about the quality of the photo that it produces, because it produces oh, like incredibly, a, he's, like a, he's into those weird ritualistic behaviors. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's a super old school film type camera. Um, but yeah, it's this big old heavy box. This is know. where I get to say hipster and mean it. You know, it's but it's the process. Yeah. It's all about the process. And the thing that I love about that is, you know, that that process still exists in in digital photography as well. But to your point earlier about how you're no longer penalized per shot. I mean, with the Gravelix. Each, each photo that you take takes 10 minutes to set the whole thing up. You know, each piece of film is this kind of disc shaped thing that you feed into it. And you, you know, it's, it's, it was, it was amazing. And the thing that was really neat about it is he and I <laughs> both shot the same photo at what we could approximate to be the, the same focal length. Um, my camera system shoots obviously at a different focal length, but I got pretty close with one of the lenses that I had. And, um, you know, we shot the same at F12 or 16 or whatever it was, same shutter speed, same everything. We tried to match so wait, like a modern digital camera versus exactly. the wooden box. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, it's, they're both objectively cool photos. They just look really different, but the process well, that it took to get from, you know, from one, from, from start to finish for each was, you know, mine took three seconds and his took 15 minutes. See, I have, <laughs> see, I have way less patience. This, this process people. <laughs> 
I guess I appreciate that there's a particular emotion that comes with all that. Mm-hmm, but I'm mm-hmm. like, all you're doing is showing off how much free time you have. <laughs> you know what? But yeah, but I, but but the counterpoint to that is, I would argue, it's the same. You know, it's the same person who would rather um, you know make uh, make a souffle versus uh, ordering it on DoorDash or something. You know, I mean, there's 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 some things, you know, you know, you could, you could spend 45 minutes in the kitchen making risotto, or you could like go on DoorDash and have it brought to you in 15 minutes. I mean, it's, they're both probably going to taste really good. It's the I think the point is that everybody <laughs> who's a gear guy like us has right. some type of weird thing that we like fetishize. And that guy was this process driven photography. It gave him yes. some joy to everyone else. It looks pedantic. It looks like a waste of time. It looks it just it's just like why would you do that when there's all these better ways of doing it for that guy it's not about the outcome like you said it's some emotion he gets through the process mm-hmm. and you know for some people in the watch space it's like manually winding their watch like, i could <laughs> never wear an automatic how dare you take that away from me right. i live for that weird little experience of turning the crown and feeling that feedback um and i'm like you know what there's other ways of feeling that but some people they're like they need that, and yeah, for sure. But it's not better. It's just different. I mean, it's it's a it's different. you know it's it's the classic journey versus the destination dichotomy. But if you don't like it, it's so easy to make fun of. Like we're made fun of by people in our lives for liking watches because they don't get the joy that comes with wearing yeah, one that gives you a sure. smile. But he could make fun of us for just holding up a camera and snapping and then moving on, like you know. <laughs> so. For me, if you can get the, a better shot by just snapping and moving on, I'm like. That means I can take way more of these pictures. So like I lose yeah. in the time it takes to appreciate any given one, but I'll have a hundred by the time you took two. Right. I'll have more to, I'll I'll be more productive. And I love I love me some productivity. So what you're saying is digital dig, the digital life is for you. We won't be finding you with a with a 35 millimeter range finder, contacts range. Oh, finder for photography? Soon. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't know <laughs> I could say that about everything, but for right. photography. I have thoroughly left film way back wherever it is in the back. I, I have so much respect for people that still mess with film. I just it's it, you know it'd be it'd be like it'd be like washing your clothing like by hand on one of those weird rigid pieces of metal versus putting the washing machine. I get that you really get a closer connection to your to your clothing and you might clean it a little bit better in some ways, but you know what? I love the convenience that comes with modern technology mm-hmm, that allows mm-hmm. me to go do other stuff, you know, because <laughs> it doesn't bring me pleasure to do that. So I'm, but I think you as well, like you'll see things that I spend a lot of time, like even, even, you know what, it's a great, in the, in, in the article writing, in the editing process, like you, you never can say an article is done. You could edit it forever. Oh, for sure. And we all have these various thresholds. Like sometimes people on the team are like, no, we need to go through more rounds. And some people are like, ah, but you know, it'll do fine. Uh, right. It's a perfect example. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, and I think, I think again, kind of going back to the, the very nature of this podcast is that, you know, we're superlative could extend to, I just, I just think there is, there is perfection and there are, there are superlative elements that can be found. Um, to me, it's an expression of, of looking deeper. It's not an expression of finding things that are actually perfect. Cause it's pretty, I mean, you know, Google, whatever the, the best of whatever is. I mean, there is, there is subjectively and objectively things that are, that are good or, or could be the best. I mean, the perfect example is asking you like, what's the best watch? There is no best watch for you or for some people, the best watch or the best film, the best uh, camera platform or the best way of shooting a photo- a photograph um, isn't so much the best, but it's the one that speaks the most to your style to your personality to your kind of your own proclivities um i mean i know you know we've, we we joke we joke about trying to get you to pick like your favorite five watches your favorite like hey ariel what's your favorite five watches this summer like your head explodes like you can't pick five best anything but i it's think nuts. but i think you know that just speaks to your your process because there's not there's not a best there there are some things that speak to you differently there are some things that that go deeper than others. And I think the journey, like what superlative expresses is the, the, the pursuit of what those things 
could be to you, not to everybody else. Yeah, it's everything from connoisseurship to the fact that perfection doesn't really exist in real life as we've sort of socially created as human beings. But in these microcosms, like <laughs> in a photograph, in a camera, mm-hmm, in a watch, mm-hmm. in a mm-hmm. process, you can, you can create some sort of artificial microcosm of perfection in a larger universe where it's, it's a fallacy. It doesn't really exist. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And that's a great, you know, that microcosm is a good example of the watch community where like, you know, all the watch guys are like, yeah, it has to be 39 millimeters and no date or else it sucks. And then you take that information out into the real world and you tell that to the watch brands and they're like, yeah, nobody buys those watches. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's, it's not perfection because that's such a, it's such a, it's such a niche. It's an echo chamber. It's a microcosm. Why can't people be okay with the idea that their (laughs) notion of perfection is totally different than the notion of perfection of the person sitting right next to them? Why, like, why is it so hard for people to appreciate yeah, we'll never get there. <laughs> never. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's just, there's this funny thing that happens in the world, for better or worse, when people try to assert their notion of perfection over a large swath of people who may completely disagree. Mm-hmm. And they're like, what do you mean you don't think this is perfect? It seemed like right. the best idea in the world to me. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Which is why human beings will never truly get along entirely. We'll never truly get along. But, you know, it goes back to what the best is, is shaped on that person's own, their worldviews, their experiences. And that's why, like, the best dive watch for this guy might not be the best dive watch for that guy because guy A is a diver and guy B can't swim. So, you know, they're both dive watch fans, but they both are looking for something very different. I agree. And let's finish off this interesting discussion by talking about how all of these topics manifest themselves in the watch community on a blog to watch a social media channel. One of the things Ooh. you do is you're the you're the expert in that regard in a lot of ways. Now we're all into it, but you're 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 someone who's sort of spearheaded a blog to watch a social media efforts as they are right now. And we're really thankful for that. I think the community is very, very thankful for that. But you know, talk a little bit about especially the internet watch community. Like I, it's such a big topic, but for people that don't know about this this sort of microcosm of the slice of life, you know, who are these people? What are they doing online? Um, and <laughs> I'll, I'll start with this. There's an interesting phenomenon. Maybe it's like this in other things, but there's a lot of people on Instagram whose entire account, like the name of their account and the little picture, is dedicated to them being a watch collector. Like they 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 they're they're a person. They like other stuff. This is their only account on Instagram. And the whole theme around it is them being a watch guy. Is that represented in other verticals or is that just like a a weird watch area thing? No, I think that's definitely, I mean, that's what's kind of unique. That's what Instagram has done is it's kind of supercharged all these other micro communities around, um, around travel, around, uh, you see it in the cycling world, you see it in the, the fitness world, um, I mean, literally, name a hobby, and that hobby has a litany of its own hashtags. Okay, and so there'll be people who'll be like fitness dad, totally. because there's people yep. that are like totally. watch guy dad. Yes, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And you know, I, that's how that's how Instagram went from being this weird place where people took pictures of sunsets and lattes and actually joined communities, these micro communities of people that had shared interests. And then from everyone within those likes communities, sunsets. Imagine yeah, exactly. that. <laughs> exactly. And then from within those communities, entire you know micro industries popped up around you know travel and influencer products and all kinds of crap. But you know it's been really interesting to see how the community has found ways to either grow or evolve, or certain accounts just stopped producing content during the pandemic for, you know, there's a ton of travel influencers where all they did was like the, the digital nomad, so to speak, where you take pride in being able to travel and post pictures of, um, you know, sunsets in Bali and then yeah, that's doing all stuff gone now, right? hundred percent gone. Yep. hundred percent gone. And a lot of those people went home and they're like, yeah, I'm in, you know, back home and wherever BFE, <laughs> you know, you know, in the U S or Canada or Australia. And those accounts kind of dropped off the map and they lost a lot of their relevancy. And I think, you know, the real mark of, of, I think what makes an account interesting to follow on Instagram is, um, you know, people that are, that are not tied to, 
you know, they're, they're able to, they're able to adapt instead of being like, Oh shoot, I can't travel now. So I guess I'll just disappear for eight months. So the watch people um, adapting or are they still, well, cause that's what they're doing. It's just, yeah. Stuff. So, well, so the, the watch people, uh, I mean, <laughs> the Instagram watch community was like, like pandemic stay at home we were made for this like i'm just gonna sit at home and like like take pictures and watch is perfect <laughs> it has been a bit of a boom it's true yeah it's been a huge it's been a huge I, boom i think what a lot of the people <laughs> in the industry don't in, implicitly understand about social media and online communities for watch lovers is that it's not first and foremost a place to learn about products and buy stuff it's first and foremost a place to find friends or yeah. like-minded individuals yeah. to say the least. Yeah. Once you nerd out about watch stuff, it becomes natural that you'll find stuff you like, find yeah. things you want to buy. But that doesn't come first for a lot of people. A lot of people, it's like, this community seems to speak my language um, and I like the product. I, you know, I want to be involved. I need to get product to be involved with it. So I kind of became a watch lover in a vacuum and it does happen, but that's, that's the exception. Most people these days are becoming watch collectors as a function of some type yep. of social thing. They yep. have a buddy into it, maybe some family members, coworkers is really popular. Um, and then, you know, lacking all those, there's always some guy online in Malaysia. He loves the same <laughs> watch as you and you don't have anything else in common, but you can talk about this movement and this design and suddenly you're like fraternal brothers. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think, I think that to me, kind of going back to answering your question about who is sort of the blog to watch community. I think if you're, if you're new to watches or you're, I mean, maybe you've been following a blog to watch for a long time, you're a crusty, you know, former forum member. And now you're, you know, I think one there's thing that makes us, there's a lot of crust. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one thing that makes us unique is that we, we cover the gamut, you know, we're, we cover the micros, we cover interesting stories in independence, we cover the super high-end weirdos, we cover, you know, the main kind of Swiss staples that everybody knows that produce, you know, a million watches a year. We cover, we cover the gamut. And I think, you know, the one thing that is unique about our community, I mean, our, our community certainly is not without its own opinions, but I think it's really diverse in its taste. And I think that's super important because you know, what you run the risk of producing is, is an, is an echo chamber that, you know, if people are not subscribed to that, like 39 millimeters or less, no date, whatever, <laughs> if they're not subscribed to that line of reasoning, it's alienating your community will turn them off and, or worse, they will think that that's the only type of watch that they should have. You know, there's a joke around like the Reddit sub forums about like the starter pack where <laughs> like, what's the joke? You, well, it's just, if you join, you know, there are some communities that are so opinionated about ownership of certain types of watches that like, if you're new to that community, the starter pack is just, it's the sin. Uh, I think it's this, what is it? The sin, um, it, you know, it's, it's a Zen, it's a Speedmaster, it's a Nomos, you know, there's some specific models kind of within those, um, you know, <laughs> those categories that those, those are just sort of the official watches of that group. Like the members of the group have kind of deemed these watches to be, so it's um, not, it's not really into watches. It's a club and to be in the club, yeah, you have to kinda. own these items. It's more like yeah, a scavenger kinda. hunt than being yeah, into watches. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a good way to put it. So I, I just think it's really important as you're kind of sussing out the community that, that speaks to you. It's really important to like, to come at it with an open mind and Ariel to your point earlier that like, you know, we're not, we're not here to convince people what's better or what's the best. We're not arbiters of taste. We're here. We're arbiters of, of what is interesting. And just because it's not interesting to you, it doesn't mean it's not interesting to this other guy. I mean, look, going back to that, you're talking about ProPhoto and the flashes and things like that. And you were talking about how compared to the Sony flash, the ProPhoto one is quote unquote designed. And this is a very simple sort of discussion, but people don't really think about it. That it's designed means that in the process of engineering the product, they added in someone whose entire job was to make sure the thing has a, a nice form. If there isn't a designer, then an engineer is typically responsible for determining what something looks like. Mm -hmm. And if you look at like, um, you know, here in California, we have some of those like outdoor power stations. You know what I'm talking about? I don't <laughs> yeah, even know yeah, exactly yeah. what they do. There's some type yeah. of relay station, but they have all this. It looks like a, like a giant like metal erector set. Like <laughs> and no designer, no architect was ever. That was all engineers. Engineers yeah. did it from A to B. 
Yeah. Like, they're just like, it works, right? That's fine. Yeah. Like, there's no thought about anything related to aesthetics or form. It's just like, it, it just looks like a computer board. It's just like engineers <laughs> put together. Now, when you see things that are designed by engineers, they work. But look at a bridge. You're like, oh, that's a beautiful bridge versus like, mm -hmm. that's an mm -hmm. ugly bridge. Mm -hmm. Engineers don't care about symmetry. They don't care about proportions. They don't care about organic forms. They just don't care about any of the things that looks good to the human eye. So adding in a designer is an extra expense. It means that the company cares a lot more about the, the, you know, the, the product and the end result and the enjoyment satisfaction and their perception. And the idea is that if you put that level of effort into it looking good, imagine all the other effort that went into other parts of it. And oftentimes that's, that's true. There was effort into a lot of parts of it. So good design is one of many facets that makes a product great. It's not the only one. So it often is the case that good looking things happen to be good products, not always, but with watches and photography gear and things like that, you know, if someone's really into the form, they're probably into other stuff as well. But you and I and other members of the community, we completely make fun of people who <laughs> just like, you know, poser watches that look good, but like are stupid and silly. Like we make fun of these people. Like you, you it's got to be more than just aesthetics, but aesthetics is like it working properly. Like it's just as important it, it like telling the time with an accuracy of, you know, 10 minutes a day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think, I, I mean, we, we don't, we don't openly make fun of them, but I, to your point, we, I yes, mean, we, we kind of cringe, <laughs> we cringe, <laughs> you, you cringe at that classic guy. And there's always one guy who, who shows up to the meeting Hey man, remember when, remember when in-person meetings were a thing, he shows up to the group gathering with just like whatever the hot watch is because not, not because like he loves it, but he, because he knows that it's something that other people like. And I've, I've said yeah. this many times before with watches and with gear and you know, that there are things that are for you and there are things that are for other people. And I think it's really important when you buy things or when you look to kind of further your interest field in something that you are doing it for you and not for other people. Talking about Mr. Desperate for attention. Yeah, for sure. Yes. <laughs> there's always, one. and they do, there's always a weird body language to them. Like sometimes there's overt is like raising their eyebrows. Like, eh, do you see this? Eh? Do you see this? And sometimes exactly. it's a little bit more subtle where they try to be relaxed, yep. but all of a sudden your, their wrist is in your face. How did that yep. happen? Well, and they're kind of gauging your reaction too. Like they, they're trying to elicit a reaction from you. They're not, you know, it's not one of shared appreciation. It's how, you know, your reaction to this is really important. You're jealous, right? <laughs> I make you jealous. <laughs> There's certainly an element, but that's of that. how we make yeah, fun of them because sure. people don't want that guy because they're what do they call them? They're like psychological vampires. They're there to yeah, suck yeah, off yeah. your energy. They're not there to show <laughs> anything cool. They're just there to suck off your energy, and that's and that is an interesting manifestation to sort of wrap things up on the online communities. Is there's a bunch of people in the same room, website, you know, discussion thread, whatever, that love the same thing, but that might be the only thing they have in common. They might also be, you know, horrible people. And that's the weirdest thing to us is the fact that while the majority of fellow enthusiasts are, are cool people, and I've made a lot of amazing friends that way, there is those people that, you know, they're toxic and we have to be the gatekeeper. We have to immediately deal with the toxicity. We can't just be like, I'm going to mute that person. Like we have to, we have to moderate. That's not always easy, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, I think, you know, people who spend, who, people who ultimately are genuine and people who genuinely spend more genuine time in their respective communities quickly learn that, you know, people are not impressed by the show. They're impressed by your passion. They're impressed by your enthusiasm. And I think your passion, your enthusiasm communicates leaps and volumes in the watches that you choose to wear. And some of my favorite guys that I've met through the watch community, the stuff that they wear is weird. It's, it's not, it's not anything what you would expect to see, but you know, they're always my favorite guys to bump into at these gatherings because one, they've always got something interesting on their wrist, but two, and more importantly, they always have a really neat story about it, how they found it, why it's weird, like why so few of these were made. And I always learn something from those people. And I think 
I think if we're not in this to to broaden our worldview and to learn about each other and to learn about watches and to learn about more, I'm honestly not sure what the point is. Lesson is cool guys like weird watches. <laughs> it's true. true. I mean, I very rarely will wear just like a conservative watch in a gathering. Yeah. Um, Zach, this has been a great show talking about a blog to watch photography, um, cameras, social media. Finally, we're going to do this once in a while. We're going to do the wrist check oh where um, <laughs> I put you on the spot. We talk about what's on your wrist. No one can have seen anything. You, you can literally make it up. You can be like, I got this group of horses. <laughs> Came in the mail yesterday. <laughs> Loving exactly, it. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, who goes first? You'll go, you're going to go first. No, I go first. All right. Uh, I'm wearing uh, the Seamaster, Omega Seamaster 300 ceramic. So this is the no date diver. Um, a 300 a M ceramic? Yeah, yeah, no, it's the 300. So, so whoa, Omega's whoa, weird whoa. about their naming conventions because they have the three, they have the 300 diver, the Seamaster 300 diver, and they have the Seamaster 300 M. And this is the, 300 divers so this There's is like actually a few more than that yeah i think there are <laughs> <laughs> so i uh, i picked this up last year i just love the um I, this is to me it's, it's the perfect summer watch is the perfect nato watch um it's on a strap right it's on a yeah it's on a nato at the moment um one thing i think that people don't appreciate about omega and blanc ponds I don't think anybody does ceramic better than Omega and Blanc Pond because it's brushed. You have contrasting finishes. You don't see that typically under ten grand. I think the Blanc Pond one is more. But um, you know, when when some of the really high end brands like Hublot does ceramic really really well. Um, I mean, they're they're also doing alternating finishes, but it's at a price point that's two or three x what this is. And below this, you know, generally you have. Um, Longines has a really great liquid injected uh, ceramic case, but it looks dramatically different. And I just, I love the fact that this is a ceramic case that kind of plays with the light. It's no date. It looks badass. And to me, like, you know, it's one of those watches where like, I mean, I get that a prop department chose what James Bond was supposed to wear, but like if James Bond chose what he was supposed to wear for the Omega catalog, I can't help but think it would be this. So. You want it to be that one? Okay. <laughs> it's got to be this. I, I, yeah, I agree that they do watch. great finishing. It's yeah. really not just about the ceramic case. It's how they finish it afterwards. And Yeah, yeah you know, exactly. I think the funny thing about the 300 is that it's mostly sold on a bracelet, but it actually looks better on a strap because you can really oh, yeah. appreciate the lugs. Totally agree. Couldn't agree more. Okay, I'm wearing, um, this is a new watch that just came out. This is the Wempe Iron Walker. So Wempe oh, is cool. a, a, we know it's a German watch retailer. They happen to have their own in-house brand. And, you know, I don't, I don't really understand the theory all the time of the watch retailers making their own house brands. It seems to be something that some do. Wempe sort of got it right, even though it's it's difficult to explain, like, why you would want it. You have to know watches really well. So it's like, it's a, it's like a great alternative watch when you're already into watches, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and the iron Walker is their steel watch on an integrated bracelet. It, it looks like a combination of certain things. It's got, um, just a lot of like little, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It's sort of Gerald Genta esque, a little bit of AP esque, a little bit of like IWC on like old generation ingenieur esque. It's got a lot of things in it. it. It doesn't look like quite any of them. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, what Wempe does is they take designs which are popular. They know this because they're a retailer. It's like, oh, people buy a lot of this type of watch. Let's make our own. So in a sense, originality is not what they're best known for, but it's about making a well-priced version that has as many bells and whistles as possible. And so in this mm -hmm. instance, the bells and whistles is not just the design of the case, but the finishing. It's right. a really nicely finished case. And this is like, I think it's like under 5,000. It's got the 7753 in there. And like, if you're into that and you want like a nice, well-made, will last you long time, steel watch and a bracelet that has a little bit of pizzazz to it, there, I don't know how you could, I mean, you'd have to spend double the price to get a good alternative. I, you know, I really, really liked that launch. Um, and I was really impressed with all of them. And the one thing that really stood out to me, I was chatting with Bilal about this because, um, you know, we're all kind of in pursuit of like the perfect, well, perfect, obviously, but like, what is the best for our respective 
lifestyles or tastes, integrated bracelets. 600 watches in, I'm still looking for it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But what I really loved about that, I've always loved the engineer, the engineer from IWC, but I always thought the engineer was either too Genta, which is okay, but they they kind of went away from the Genta thing. But by the time they went away from Genta and started really finishing them in a cool way, a lot of the, the, the soul had sort of gone out of that line. And then at the same time... I think the, the original was a high spec. High spec yeah. designed it, right? Yeah, it was. Uh, no, it was Genta. No, that was... A, was it was, it? Originally, it was a Genta. wasn't high yeah. spec? Yeah, it went away. Mm. Um, the flip side of that is it's a it's a Vacheron overseas, but I can't, I can't for the life of me quite square myself with the overuse of the Maltese cross. I'll just leave it at that on the... <laughs> on the Vacheron. And so I love that, you know, this new line from Wimpy, it looks to me like... Yeah, it's got, it's very overseas. It's very overseas, but without the crosses. And so for somebody who's been dying for that, like kind of really more next level finishing of the Ingenieur, but without the, the, the over-designed look of the Vacheron, it's like, it's right there and the price is right. Um, so I love it that you, uh, they've already, that you they've, already, that they've already sold a lot. Yeah. I, I love stuff like this. Um, it's just, you know, what's great about this watch is it's, it's just handsome and it does its thing well. And you can wear it casually. You can wear it with a suit. You can do sporty stuff with it. I, it wouldn't be the only watch I'd ever want to wear because you just don't want to wear like an all metal watch all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it, it, you know, there's a lot of guys out there and we've done research. We found this, their collections between like something like six and 12 watches. Right. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so I think what a lot of people do is they they maneuver watches in and then some watches out of their collection. And a lot of people want the watch that fits this norm, this sort of like steel bracelet watch. And there's there's no shortage of them. But this mm-hmm. is a really good option for a lot of people that want something very versatile. And so I think that people that have those like roughly dozen watch collections, every piece in that collection needs to have a high degree of versatility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. Totally. agree. Okay. Um, this has been, uh, another great episode of superlative. Thank you, Zach, for joining. We will talk about more things next time. Please subscribe to the show, rate the show, give us feedback on the show, and we'll bring more shows to you. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to another episode of the superlative podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform for questions, comments, and ideas please email the show at superlative at ablogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? <laughs> 